0: And welcome to Spy Hards Podcast, where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm the money. Every penny of it. That's right. I'm Cam the Provocateur. <laughs> I was just going to call you the money for the rest of the episode, but that no. it either works. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean... I'm the money every week, so, you know. Yeah. Uh, well, I've called you worse, to be fair. But <laughs> it's a big week this week. There's some sort of celebration going on. Someone's turning 60. He's in a man, and he's named James Bond. And so we've got a few things going on over the next two weeks. We've got a couple of spy master interviews coming your way, which we'll tell you the details of in the episode and we also have a special review of casino royale 1954 coming out next week Uh, i can't wait to talk about peter laurie once again but to celebrate 007 turning 60 we have a very special film this week for you and to break it down we thought we'd bring on a very special agent it is none other than well a man who has written the character of james bond he certainly knows what he's talking about at least twelve books under his name about Bond, Mister Raymond Benson. Hello, sir. How are you doing?
1: Hi, Scott. Hi, Cam. I'm doing very well. Thank you. Thank you for having me
2: on. No, well, thank you for being here. Yeah,
0: it, it's it's a big anniversary. It's sixty years of a, a certain character that we're somewhat familiar with, I suppose. So uh, nothing too big.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, next year is the seventieth anniversary of the books. So
0: yeah, quite um, right,
1: indeed. You know. They just, these anniversaries, they just keep coming.
0: <laughs> we'll find any reason to celebrate, to be fair. It'll be the it'll be the 25th anniversary of Dying of the Day or something like that soon enough, and we'll yeah. all be, we'll, we'll be celebrating the invisible car. But um, yeah, I yeah. yeah, I don't know about that. No, I, <laughs> maybe not, but uh, we'll, we'll peel away from that. But uh, before we talk about this week's film, um, your credentials sort of exceed doing this anyway. There's no need to really do it. But for those who do not know who you are, sir, um, just tell us a little bit about how you got connected with the world of James Bond.
1: Well, that could, that could take up half of our, uh, our <laughs> podcast here. Um, but I'll try to be brief. Um, you know, I'm, I'm a child of the fifties and in sixties, and I was lucky enough to see the, the original films on the big screen. Uh, the first one I saw was Goldfinger. I was nine years old and my father took me to see it. And then, you know, just a few months later, the double bill of Dr. No and for Marshall with Love came out. And so I saw the first three films on the big screen within a year while I was nine years old. Um, and that of course had a big impact on me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) it was, you know, and you got to remember the bond films were the star Wars of the sixties. You know, they were the big blockbusters. There was nothing else. Um, and, um, so, I became a fan. I actually then started picking up the Ian Fleming novels and started reading them at a very young age. And, um, you know, some of it probably went over my head at the time, but I got the stories and I thought they were great and reread them a few years later when I was a little older and reread them again later and reread them again later. Uh, followed the series all the way through and, you know, considered myself a big fan. But, you know, I kind of became a normal person and, and went to college and studied theater and, uh, ended up in new york city directing plays composing music you know doing that thing for many years uh but then in the 80s the early 80s um i had this um well i i was with a group of friends and they uh the, a question was posed over the table in drinks uh what book would you write if you had to write a book and we went around the table and i said well gee i I think I'd like to write an encyclopedia uh, history coffee table book about James Bond, because there was nothing like that at the time that encompassed everything. You know, a biography of Ian Fleming, uh, a history of the phenomenon, analyses and critiques of all the books and all the movies, all in one tome. We had had, you know, a couple of books on the films. Uh, We'd had biographies of Ian Fleming. We'd had one or two books on the novels, but nothing together. And so I wanted to fill that gap and I started pursuing that. It took me three years. I went over to England and met uh, members of Ian Fleming's family and his colleagues and business people and uh, the people at uh, what was then called Glidrose, now Ian Fleming Publications. And um, we got along. The book was finally published, The James Bond Bedside Companion, in 1984. And they were impressed. Uh, I Kind of that established my credentials as sort of a bond expert, whatever that means. I got involved with the American Fan Club. I uh, started appearing at conventions and so forth. And uh, But, you know, my life went on. I was uh, writing and designing computer games in the late 80s and early 90s. And then out of the blue, in 1995, uh, Peter Jansen Smith, who was Ian Fleming's literary agent and the, the man who was chairman of Glidrose at the time, he called me out of the blue one morning and just said uh, raymond john gardner is uh decided to hang up the hat and and retire from the gig how would you like to give it a shot just out of the blue you know uh <laughs> no <problem>. and, yeah. <laughs> and i you know i just kind of went well
0: <laughs>
1: okay i'll give it a shot yeah and uh you know it was kind of a rigorous sort of audition process But I got the job and uh, spent seven years writing Bond novels.
2: Now, I'm curious. um, I think a lot of fans have, you know, a James Bond story they'd love to tell or, you know, think to themselves, like, I could write a James Bond novel. What I would like to know is, you know, when you're given this opportunity, what are the biggest challenges, the biggest hurdles in actually making that a reality, like actually telling that story?
1: Well, um, I think what my strengths were, were were that I knew the universe really, really well. I knew the books. I knew the Fleming novels inside and out. I'd read all of Gardner's books, everything that had come before me. Um, And uh, I had honed my fiction writing uh, in the, while I was doing the computer games, because the, the, what I, the kinds of games I was writing were the adventure style, Mm -hmm. you know, story based games where there's a plot and a story, and you're a character that's moving through that story, and you're encountering obstacles, and you've got to get around those obstacles, and there's characters, and there's dialogue. So, you know, the scripts I was writing for these games were like phone books, big giant, you know, with lots of different paths of what you could take and stuff. So that's really kind of where I learned it. But also my theater training um, as a director of stage plays, you know, you really learn how to analyze a script and how to analyze story and beats and uh, three-act structure. Uh, all of that was ingrained in me. So, you know, even though I had not written a novel <laughs> yet, um, my first novel was a James Bond novel published worldwide. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that's pretty extraordinary, I got to say. Um, I Even I appreciate the, the weirdness of that. Um, but I, I I rose to it. The the I guess the the big challenge for me was uh, becoming a British writer, because uh, I, obviously I was the first American to do it, and um, you know I had to watch my Americanisms. I had I, I did go to England a lot during those seven years. I was there four four times a year, so you know I gradually by the third book I was i was speaking like a brit and, and and writing like one too but you know the first book and so you know they the 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 british publisher and uh the people at Glidrose were very good at helping me you know uh with the americanisms and making sure that there weren't any and things like that um and that i guess that was the toughest part but you know i th- i think i rose to the challenge all right um as far as writing the plots um what i did was I would get a map. Well, first of all, we had a big sit down to talk about what direction we would go because Gardner had set his books contemporary. We had discussed a little bit about, well, what if we put it back in the 50s or the 60s and, you know, did that. But uh, Peter decided that since the movies had just rebooted with Pierce Brosnan when GoldenEye was a big success, he said, why don't we keep in sync with those films? And, And in fact, Make your M a woman too. Uh, So they really wanted my books to be kind of like the films of the time, you know, with a little more action and a little more humor. And but 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 I said, you know, look, I want to keep Bond, you know, pure like Fleming's Bond. I I wanted all of his vices intact. And uh, they said, well, that might be a little anachronistic now, but if you can do it do it. And I think I did. Um, the plots, I would get a map of the world and pinpoint areas of the world that Britain was in, uh, concerned about. Uh, for example, in Zero Minus Ten, the first book, uh, obviously Hong Kong was, was an issue. I knew the book would be published in 1997, which was the year Hong Kong was handed back to China. So I thought that's a perfect situation, You know, some some kind of intrigue going on in Hong Kong. Uh, with the second book, it was the Cyprus situation because Britain kind of is a policeman in, in Cyprus. Uh, you know, there's the Turkish side and the Greek side that are always, you know, skirmishing. Uh, so it was stuff like that. Um, and once I, once I pinpointed a locale and a history, I would do some research into the, you know, why Britain was involved. Uh, and usually the plot grew out of that.
0: Well, in in between doing your own books, you were also sort of making novelizations of the films. That's right. Which is, I imagine, a completely different beast as well, because it's uh, the concept is not necessarily yours at that point. You're just is it, is it like fleshing the world out. How how is it different from maybe creating your own story to sort of novelizing a film?
1: Well, it took a year to do my own stories. You know, I would come up with scra- uh, you know, from scratch the story, and I would do it. I was required to do an outline to show uh glidrose uh and the british publisher and the american publisher what i was going to do um so it was a long process much more lo- you know a longer process and i would travel to all the locations that i was writing about so i went to hong kong i went to cyprus i went to all these places um and so that took a lot of time it was you know a year per book the novelizations i had 6 weeks to write each Whoa. time okay so Because they had to have the publisher had to have the manuscript six months before the publication date, so in each time the film was still being shot. So I was get I was getting I got the script, you know, an early version of the script, and then every day I would get faxed pages of the script as it was being changed. Um, And it was just a case, yes, of you know, if you were going to put in prose everything that's in a screenplay, you're going to be about 30,000 words too short for a novel. Uh, So you do have to flesh it out. Uh, Luckily, I was able, in most cases, especially the first one and the second one, to add some scenes that weren't Mm -hmm. in the script. Uh, For example, I gave Wei Lin a a background chapter. Uh, I, you know, got permission to do it and, you know, told Eon what I was doing, and they said fine. Um, So, yeah, yeah. but that was more of, a, more of a, wow, the pressure's on. I've got to really churn it out. Um, it was a very different kind of beast. So I do prefer the original novels over the, the three <laughs> novelizations.
2: <laughs> I, can, I can buy that. Now, I, I'm curious, you know, the Bond universe is so, filled with so many iconic characters. You've written your own adventures. What are your favorite? Do you have a favorite character that you've created for the canon of Bond?
1: A favorite character? Oh uh, wow! Hmm. Well, I, I like my Felix lighter because I am from Texas. Uh, Felix is supposed to be from Texas. Um, I think I gave. I think Fleming actually did a good job of of you know forming a Texan operatives. Uh, he didn't quite get the language right. Uh, so, uh, but but I like his 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 Felix a lot. Uh, his Felix was much more jovial and let's go get some drinks, you know, <laughs> let's go get drunk. That kind of guy, which was never really portrayed in the movies. Uh, I don't think the F- Felix of Fleming was ever really shown in the movies at all. So, you know, I kind of just grabbed onto that and 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 gave my Felix a real Texan vibe that I think w- was realistic. Um, as far as, uh, you know, um, I like my... Um, I like the female in High Time to Kill, Hope Kindle. Um, I don't know. It's been so long since I've even
0: read. <laughs> you know, <it's>, fair enough. <laughs> I can barely remember them. So. <laughs> well, people that have clicked play on this episode have a fair idea about what we're talking about this week. And before I introduce it, I think the last question I want to ask you, Raymond, is you, know, you stopped doing the Bond novelizations with in the Day was the last one that was published. Um, yeah. And this film we're talking about happens a few years afterwards. At right. that period in time where you, Diana of the Day has been published, what was your opinion on where the Bond films were going? How were you feeling about the Bond franchise in around about 2002, 2003?
1: Well, because, you know, I did work on Diana of the Day, writing the novelization, uh, I was involved. So, um, you know, I, I, I can't really say... Um, what my feelings about the movie were, I was, you know, I I enjoyed writing the book. Um, I thought it, you know, they were starting, you know, if you look at the, each actor's series of films, they get progressively more fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way, you know, I mean, you know, the Roger Moore series uh, from Living That Die through Moonraker, that was gonna be his 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 body of work until they talked him into doing more. You know, and you can see that from *Live and Let Die* to *Moonraker*, there's a big leap in fantastical. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, humor, oh yeah. You know, a lot of more humor and, and science fiction, and you know that's not possible, but you know, hopefully it's fun. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that kind of that kind of thing, and I think the the Brosnans were getting that way, you know. And *Die mm-hmm. Another Day* had had a lot of. Okay, we, we've got a Korean guy who changes his face to a British guy and the voice and everything completely changes. Okay, I guess we can buy that. Uh, <laughs> you know, and then there's the invisible car and him, you know, doing the surfing on the on the waves. And, you know, so yeah, eh, but there's things I like about Diet of the Day. I mean, you know, um, especially like the first half. Um, uh, I'm not going to knock it, it was fun.
0: No, it's it's more just a case of there'd been twenty films by that point. It had just celebrated an anniversary in two thousand and two. It was a big time for, for Bond. And I suppose the question is more had you had your definitive film at this point? Maybe not past this week's film, but like in those first twenty, had you had a favourite? Like was there one that you thought this was the perfect adaptation or yes. this was the perfect James Bond film?
1: Yes. From Russia with Love. <laughs> mm-hmm. That will always be yeah. my favorite. That will always be my favorite film. Uh in fact, I, I look back to Dr. No and From Rush of Love as my two favorite Bond films of all of them. Um you know, it it might be my age that, you know, I experienced them at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh but I think they capture, you know, Fleming's voice, Fleming's world. They take themselves seriously, they take their time to tell a story rather than the boom, 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 action, 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 and a little bit of story, action, 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 a little bit of story, action, 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 you know, that the Bond films became. Uh, Goldfinger, of course, is, you know, the one that really established the blueprint of how the films would be made from then on. Uh, they always kind of look back at Goldfinger and say, you know, what did we do with that? And let's try to do something like that again. Um, it, you know, Goldfinger is probably my third favorite. You know, and it was the first one I saw. Uh, Goldfinger actually, in my opinion, is the most influential film of the 1960s in pop culture terms. Uh, because it spawned so many imitations and style, stylistic uh, innovations that many, many films copied. Um, you know, and after that, you know, then it's just variations on a the theme. So, uh, I mean, I have my favorites going forward. Um, I prefer, you know, all the 60s films just mm-hmm. because uh, that's my time. <laughs> you know, yeah. I know people younger than me. You know, if if you saw Moonraker
0: as your first Bond
1: film, that might be your favorite. You know, that's fine. I, I appreciate that.
0: There's people uh, out there that say Dying of the Day is their favorite. That's I know, I know, I know. Sure. It's
1: it's amazing. There's this little app online called the Sorta Dot App. Have you seen that, where mm-hmm. you can rank your rank your Bond films? Yep. You know, everybody was posting, you know, their rankings, and everybody's different. There's not one single ranking that's the same as somebody else's, uh, and that's what's cool about the Bond films is that um, they're throughout the history of them, uh, each one, I you know, each decade sort of reflects the films of that decade i mean you can really have a pop culture history lesson by watching them all in chronological order i mean the the 70s films definitely speak 1970s and so on um so yeah it kind of depends how old you are and what your life experience is you know it's got they've got something for everybody
0: well i think we've proven your expertise on james bond Raymond, I, I think i think you pass uh muster on that one uh so the question now goes to you cam it's the 60th anniversary of james bond
2: maybe we should do something special what are we talking about this week yes we are going to revisit the 1967 casino royale no i kid i kid we are going to tackle the 2006 casino royale the launch of the daniel craig era
1: Right. Well, you know, we can't talk about that without talking about the 1967 version as well (laughs) as the 1954 version.
0: Mm -hmm. They're both very important. People who just, just, just dismiss them and don't ever watch them. I find that fascinating. I think you should look at your sources, find things out, watch and see what you liked about them. But we're talking about 2006. Usually the question I would ask at this point is, where was everyone when this film came out? What is your... Experience. What was your memory of the time? Raymond, I'll ask you, what do you remember about 2006 when Casino Royale first came out?
1: Well, I was, you know, definitely, uh, it was four years after my Bond work and I was doing other things. I was writing my own novels. Uh, I was also at that time doing some other tie-in work. I was working for the Tom Clancy estate. Well, he was still alive at the time. Uh, doing the Splinter Cell novels uh, as well as my own books. Um, so I was looking forward. I was, I was in a mindset that I really wanted to get away from bond because I had, you know, it was, it was a rough, I mean, I wouldn't say a rough seven years, but it was a very, uh, stressful, uh, seven years. I was constantly working and traveling and on the go. Uh, and it was hard work. So, you know, I had to kind of reboot myself and established myself as you know a writer of stuff that wasn't james bond um but you know i was i was still very interested um i wanted to see it you know and, and i wanted to see what this this new guy daniel craig craig could do um you know i i didn't buy into all that you know nonsense that was going on when he was cast about him being blonde and everything i was going oh who cares um you know i didn't understand that at all that was kind of crazy but man when it when i saw the movie um i was i was quite blown away uh i would i would rank casino royale 2006 in my top 5 of all the films
0: okay well that so you, well, you had probably a number 4 after goldfinger <laughs> okay so it's up there and
2: you had a, a good experience with it in 2006 good what about you cam so yeah i remember um, there was all the kind of the, the negativity about Daniel Craig being Bond. And a lot of that was just very like superficial things. But I do remember when he was cast that both my sister and I who had grown up on James Bond were like, eh? Like it was not at all what we anticipated. And I remember the two of us, you know, like we were drawing on things like we'd seen him in like Tomb Raider and um um I'm trying to think um uh, Road to Perdition and things like that. But it was like Could not wrap my head around it. And I was also, I guess, coming off of an era where they really cast very recognizable actors um, in those movies. You know, when you watch World Is Not Enough, say what you will about the movie. We knew who Denise Richards was. We knew who Robert Carlyle was. They were very recognizable people. And as they kind of started to trot out the cast of Casino Royale, it was like, a okay, I don't really recognize most of these people. I knew of Ava Green from um, Kingdom of Heaven but it's it felt very low wattage and i was struggling with what they were doing i wasn't i think i was i'd also lost some confidence after dying another day which was so all over the place that it was like i don't know that i'm 100% on board i don't know what this is but i remember the second i saw the teaser trailer i was like okay i wasn't concerned and i went you know opening weekend and was absolutely blown away i think at this point Uh, yeah, this was the only Bond movie I went and saw a second time in theaters. I would go on in the future and see them multiple times, but at the time, that was the first one that got me back, and I was someone who felt very loyal to Brosnan coming out of that era, and there was kind of that whiff of, like, he was kind of, you know, publicly feeling hurt about being dismissed, and so I think there was some loyalty there, but Craig won myself over, my sister over, and everyone we knew over immediately watching this movie, and we really fell in love with it.
0: I was a bit of a different story, actually. I distinctly remember the marketing. I remember it being very much everywhere. It's a new James Bond. It's not your daddy's James Bond. That sort of stuff you see in the British tabloids. Um, and I, I'm a massive Chris Cornell fan, of course. So Having him do the the, the song is uh, blew me away. I've seen I've seen Soundgarden. I've seen Audio Slave both live. I've seen Chris Cornell live by himself. Like that, I I was in in that sense. I was hooked. But I just didn't really seemed to want to go past Pierce Brosnan in my head. And so I actually don't think I saw it in cinema. I think I actually waited until a home release before I actually watched it. Just through, like Cam said, some sort of strange loyalty to a man who isn't doing it anymore, who I imagine probably still would have done a fifth film, but that's by the by. And so, when I did see it, I was like, why did I not see this in cinemas? Why on earth did Mm -hmm. I not go? Because it it blew me away and I was worried going into it like it was this action bond and it was losing a lot of what it used to have but it worked it just worked everything about the film worked and and I was hooked on Daniel Craig after that and saw all the rest of his films in in theaters
2: yeah yeah like it really won I think everyone over and it was coming off that trend the you know Batman Begins kind of kicked it off of doing kind of the more sophisticated some would use the word gritty but i think that's really up in the air when you revisit batman begins (laughs) but sort of that more realistic slant on kind of a you know a classic story character a classic hero character and at the time like because i had really liked batman begins i was like what are the chances that you're going to have another really great example of this so quickly um, because Bond is famous for jumping on trends, you know. We referenced uh, referenced Moonraker, you know, jumping on the Star Wars trend, and there's been various others. So I was genuinely blown away that this one was not only you know on par with something like Batman Begins, but in a lot of ways better.
1: Well, I think that I think they were influenced more by the Bourne movies because uh, they mm-hmm. started in 2002 and 2000. You know, they, so they had seen two of those. Uh, they were already filming Casino Royale when. You know, before Batman begins even appeared, mm-hmm. so um, uh, I think yeah, the Bourne movies really had a the style of the Bourne movies had an influence. But you know, they 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 got the rights. I mean, you got to think about the whole history of the rights of Casino Royale and how they it came about uh, to why they decided to go this this direction. Um, I mean, you know, very quickly the the rights to Casino Royale has a tortured history.
2: <laughs> you know? We have uh, chronicled them um, on the Casino Royale 67 episode we did. They are unbelievable.
1: <laughs> I know. But in 1999, uh, Eon finally got, well, you know, M-
2: uh,
1: MGM Eon got the rights, finally, uh, from uh, Columbia. Because of a, you know, it it all became, you know, uh, again, it was all kind of due to Kevin McClory and his lawsuit again. And then Sony uh, taking over, you know, both MGM and Columbia, and then them going, well, let's make a little swap. And, you know, they traded Spider Man rights for, for Casino Royale rights, and finally they had them. And because Casino Royale is so much an origin story in itself, Inherently, they they realized. Well, we can't just you know do a fifth Pierce Brosnan movie with Casino Royale, and you know Barbara, I know, and Michael both really wanted to do this story. They've been wanting to do Casino Royale for a long time and never could, because uh, it is what a great story. Um, so, you know, they decided. Look, we're going to have to just reboot, cast a new guy, a younger guy, and pretend it's the beginning, and you know it was very different um and now now that the complete five movies of daniel craig have have come about we now see that they are sort of a standalone arc a standalone universe separate from the other bond films um mm-hmm. i mean you have to look
0: at it that way um you'll drive yourself crazy
1: every now and then they would do an easter egg a nudge nudge wink wink to the other films you know by showing you know uh uh bernard lee's portrait in in the uh in the office or uh you know the aston martin appearing and little little things that to remind the audience okay this is still our bond film you know but they're really it's not daniel craig is not the same bond as pierce brosnan was i mean it's a different universe definitely you no know? it's a different time different timeline.
0: Yeah, I, I don't know why people latch onto the concept that there needs to be some sort of continuity in twenty five films. There's clearly a delineation in this film, but
1: yeah, I also believe I also believe Judy Dench's M is not the same M in the Pierce Brosnan movies. Absolutely, for sure. People,
0: people were yeah. making that mistake too. Mm-hmm. Um, though for those who have never seen this film, somehow here <laughs> is your letterbox. <laughs> Go <box>. away. Yeah. <laughs> Just go away. Why are you listening? (laughs) Find some other podcast. Who needs you, really? I mean, come on. Casino Royale 67. Check that one out. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Peter Sellers is calling you. Um, Here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Casino Royale. Everyone has a past. Every legend has a beginning. Le Chiffre, a banker to the world's terrorists, is scheduled to participate in a high-stakes poker game in Montenegro where he intends to use his winnings to establish his financial grip on the terrorist market. M sends Bond on his maiden mission as Agent 007 to attend this game and prevent Le Chiefer from winning. With the help of Vespa Lind and Felix Leiter, Bond enters the most important poker game in his already dangerous career. <laughs> Boy, they really lost the punch of the movie with uh, that synopsis there. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't, wasn't quite as good as it could have been, but... Uh, yeah.
2: I, I guess it sets it up. I guess Raymond, you need to get on Letterbox and punch that one up. Yeah, <laughs> we need, we need a writer, please.
1: Yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, I I was a little confounded that they used Texas Hold'em as the game. Uh, yeah. Uh, I would have preferred they'd stuck with Baccarat, but yeah, minor quibbles. <laughs>
0: as a as a man who doesn't understand poker i still don't understand poker i wish i did i've tried baccarat i just about get now but uh yeah, Yeah, yeah poker eludes me um but i guess before we get to what we think about the film now cam do you have
2: even more on the storied beginnings of casino royale yes and raymond feel free to jump in if anything uh you know you know more than i do for sure so let me know if there's anything that is outstanding but basically yes uh the uh, option of doing Casino Royale had been very desirable for a long time and um, the rights had obviously been a mess. And even at a point like Quentin Tarantino has said that he had mentioned to the Broccoli family that he would like to do a version of that. And Pierce Brosnan, I remember very publicly saying things about, oh, we'd love to do it with Quentin Tarantino. We'd love to do that. Uh, it does not sound like the Broccoli's were at all interested in, in working with Quentin Tarantino on a um, you know Casino Royale film. And so... They decided that Die Another Day had pushed things a little too far, and they needed to refresh. They were going through contract negotiations, which the stories of those with Brosnan are very messy, where it's like everyone has like a different version of what was happening, but it seemed like the negotiations were just stretching on and on and on. I don't even know that they were that excited about doing a fifth with him, but it was like they still were going through negotiations, and ultimately it seemed like from the various versions that perhaps his agent was pushing a little too far, and they were also... Lukewarm on just the concept of doing another film with him, so just decided to move on and adapt Casino Royale um, into a film as something of a restart. And so they brought on Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, who'd written, you know, a couple of the Brosnan films at this point, and they wrote up an initial draft. Um, at this point, they brought in Martin Campbell to restart it. And Martin Campbell, since we had met up with him in Goldeneye had done a series of films. He did Mask of Zorro, which was hugely successful. He did Vertical Limit, um, Beyond Borders, which I don't know if people remember. That was an Angelina Jolie film. And he'd also done Legend of Zorro, which was less successful than Mask of Zorro on uh, a few different levels. But, you know, he was drawn back to this simply because it was going to be so different than what he'd done before. He's a guy who I constantly feel like they would like to have do more Bond movies, but he really has... Any he doesn't seem to have any interest unless it's something he hasn't really done before. He's not like a sequel guy, and so that was the big pull for him.
0: There's people that keep calling out for him to do the next Bond. I'm I'm happy with the two Martin Campbells we've had.
2: Yeah.
1: Oh yeah, I thought yeah he he, he was he was very good. Um, both of them. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um, and so it was apparently him who suggested they bring in uh, Paul Haggis to do a rewrite on the script. Um, actually he, he had a quote in, uh, the Nobody Does It Better book, the oral history, where he's just like, uh, I don't think Purvis and Wade do a lot for Bond. They kind of get the basics, but beyond that, you need to go a little bit beyond their work. Um, so Paul Haggis started off in 1980 in TV and had a like long, you know, history on TV. He'd written originally on some animated shows like Plastic Man and Richie Rich and Scooby-Doo. Before moving into sitcoms like Different Strokes and The Facts of Life. And ultimately becoming like a showrunner and creating shows like Due South, Walker, Texas Ranger, and Family Law. He didn't have a lot of film credits. He'd done a 1993 film called Red Hot, which was like a tribute to 50s rock music. um, That really was something of a blip. I'd never even heard of this movie. Um, But it was 2004. Where he shot crash and that movie would be released a little later but would go on a real streak because in 2004 million dollar baby a movie he also wrote would take best picture at the oscars and he would get a screenplay nomination and the next year when crash was released it won the best picture and he um won the best screenplay for that as well so he walked out with two oscars and so he was a hot commodity so it made a lot of sense to bring him on and He said originally he was just brought on to focus on the third act. He read the initial script and met with the Broccolis and basically said, yeah, you don't have a third act. I can fix that. And so his main goal was to keep the focus on Vesper because originally they had her killed off and Bond would then kind of seek out the guys who had taken the money. And that would kind of be the ending. And he said, no, no, we need to keep the focus on Vesper right to the end. And his main interest was exploring Bond's relationships with women and the character's emotional armor and so he said he rewrote that third act and then they were like can you rewrite the second act as well and he said oh okay so he did that and then they were like could you rewrite the first act as well (laughs) and so it was a process where he was writing the script in reverse and he said he never really saw the full script like he never sat down and had a full script draft What a bizarre way to write a story. But then
0: we've also heard Raymond saying about writing a whole book in six weeks. So these crazy Hmm. feats have been done in the Bond world by the sounds of it.
2: Yeah, very true. And as for the big Bond search, um, you know, they auditioned a lot of actors for Bond. It's one of those things where you can just start listing off a whole string of names. And there were a lot of major names, you know, Christian Bale, Carl Urban, all, you know, met with the producers or tested in some capacity. But the the ones they were looking closely at were Henry Cavill. Like that was Henry Cavill was the one that really had their attention. But um, he was only 22 at the time, and Martin Campbell really was championing him. He was the one that Martin Campbell said, "That's that's the guy."
0: Where was where was Henry Cavill at this point? Was he even a name? Oh, pfft.
2: No, no, and it's interesting because just other names, you know, Ewan McGregor, Orlando Bloom, um, Sam Worthington. Uh, Goran Vizhnick from ER, like these were all known quantities who were testing, but it was like Henry Cavill who was an unknown. Um, that was the one that at least Martin Campbell was really on board for.
0: Which is fantastic because they're still saying he's the top runner for it now, and it's what eighteen years. There is gone? there is
1: no top runner for it now. No, and
0: I even I, even I, people, I mean more in the fans' he, eyes, but so
1: and so is 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 being considered. It's all it's all.
0: Pookie, <laughs> I I could buy that. I could buy that. I know the bookies like to tell you that uh, so and so has got good odds, but I imagine that they have no list. Of, they have no whiteboard with faces on it right now. No,
1: they do not.
2: Let's just say <laughs> no one got rich betting on Daniel Craig because no one was betting on Daniel Craig in two thousand
1: six. <laughs> I actually knew good who thing. he was, though. I'd seen him in other movies. You know,
0: had
2: had had layer cake come out by this point?
0: Yeah. Oh,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah, but it wasn't like, at least over where I, you know, in North America, at least, it was not a huge name movie. I saw it for sure on video. I saw it before Casino Royale came out, but it wasn't one that when it was playing in theaters, we were particularly aware of, at least up here in Vancouver, BC. And
1: he was in Munich, Mm-hmm. Munich, the Spielberg movie. Yep. Um,
2: I remember watching Munich and at that point, I knew he was Bond. I knew Bond was coming. And I remember just like squinting throughout Munich to be like, okay, this is Bond. Okay. Like, can I see this? And uh Yeah. That worked a little better.
1: I can't recall if um, Infamous had come out. It came out the same year as Casino Royale, but I don't know if it was before. I think it was before, but I didn't see it until after Mm -hmm. Casino Royale. That was the one where uh, it's the uh, Truman Capote story and Daniel Craig plays the killer. um, Yep. uh, The in cold blood crime
2: yeah, that one got overlooked a little bit because of Capote coming out first. Yeah,
1: I know, it did. And, and frankly, I, I prefer Infamous. Uh, I thought it was a better movie.
2: Right.
0: Wasn't um, Archangel also part of this? Because I've heard that being around, and we've obviously spoken to Dick Clement and Ian LaFrenet in the past, and they wrote that as far as, yeah, they did write that. Um, I, I always heard that that was also connected to it somehow.
2: Yeah, that was something that the Broccoli's had seen and really liked. But they also cited things like they loved his character work in Road to Perdition. Um, they really appreciated his work as the poet Ted Hughes in the movie Sylvia, which that movie is very obscure. Um, and then when they saw Layer Cake, they just, they, he was a leading man. They could see that he could carry a movie. And so like it was not really just like one thing. It was a string of things. But Archangel was definitely one of them. Um, and so... You know, they did the big announcement of Daniel Craig on October 14th, you know, in 2005, where they brought him down, you know, the Thames in the boat, and that just fed more fuel because of the life preserver. And it was just like this ongoing case of people not trusting Craig until footage leaked out from the paparazzi of him coming out of the water. And that was the thing that really turned the tide, where people said, okay, we think this guy might be able to play Bond.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, yeah, you you see him in those blue boxes. I think that was set it
2: for a lot of people. Certainly sold it for me. Definitely. Definitely. And uh, just some of the other casting. Scott, when we did our Salt episode, we were talking about Angelina Jolie um, being approached about a Bond film. And we were debating which one it was. It was actually this one. Oh. We thought it might have been Die Another Day, but it was this one. Um, Basically, the producers always wanted Eva Green. They had seen her in the movie The Dreamers, the Bernardo Bertolucci movie. And she was busy. She was committed to another movie. And they basically kept Going back and forth to see if they could get her, but they had to explore other options. And according to the casting um, director Debbie McWilliams, she said there was a whole lot of names, a lot of people, you know, were looked at, but only two people were considered viable options if Eva Green was not available, and that was Angelina Jolie and Charlize Theron. Hmm. I mean, both fantastic actors.
1: Yeah, I knew of Eva, Eva, Eva Green uh, from from The Dreamers. That's where I first was aware of her, and
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I was kind of stricken by that. <laughs> <laughs> okay.
2: <laughs> and uh, because of the back and forth, like the movie Eva Green was committed to ended up collapsing. And so she wasn't even cast in Casino Royale until two weeks into shooting. So they said it was a little nail biting because at that point, you know, you're already off and running. You kind of want to have your female lead cast. But uh, it all worked out. And Mads Mickelson. Um, Was pursued by Barbara Broccoli after she saw the 2002 Danish film Open Hearts, which was a movie directed by Suzanne Beer, who did the, you know, directed episodes of The Night Manager. She also did Bird Box. And this was a Danish film. And this is why when people talk about odds makers, for example, on James Bond, Barbara Broccoli is a very different producer who, whenever you look at who she's casting, she's watching movies that people have perhaps never heard of or only cinephiles really know about. Right. And that's who she's looking at yeah. for these movies. And that's something that I think a lot of people. She
1: has, she has very broad taste. She has very broad. She sees art films. She, she knows the whole mm-hmm. the whole gamut of, of movies. She's a very smart lady. Uh, I, I knew of Mads Mikkelsen from a movie called Adam's Apple, which was also a Dutch film. And I had seen it in 2005 uh, at a film festival in Italy. Which coincidentally also featured a film that Purvis and Wade had written. Um, I, the name escapes me now, but they, they were in competition with Adam Zappel, and Adam Zappel won won the f- film festival. And I thought this guy is really good. This guy that was in Mads Mickelson—that was the first time I'd ever seen him. So when I heard he was cast as Le Chiffre, I just kind of went, "Oh, that will be really interesting." And you know, and I knew Jeffrey Wright from you know. Uh, Lots of things. Uh he was a you know a theater actor and um I thought that was interesting casting. Giancarlo Giannini, I've known since the seventies. You know, he was the big star of Lena vertmuller's movies. Uh Seven Beauties, he got nominated for an Oscar. Uh and he was fantastic in it. Um, so I knew I knew him right off the bat. Uh, I kinda wondered what had happened to him <laughs> because he was he was huge in the seventies and then in the 80s and 90s, you kind of hardly ever saw him. And then suddenly he was back, you know, and as I was kind of like, wow, okay.
2: <laughs> yeah, I remember seeing him in Hannibal. I think that was where I became somewhat more aware of him, uh-huh. I think. Um, but yeah, and so like, you know, Mads Mikkelsen, it didn't seem like there was many alternate villain options, they were really pursuing him. And he actually initially was like, I'm busy. I can't, I can't. But they kept pursuing him. And ultimately, I think things worked out pretty well there. Um, Just in terms of uh, behind the scenes challenges, we were talking about, you know, Texas Hold'em and Scott saying that he doesn't really understand it. Martin Campbell didn't either. And that scared the crap out of him. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) basically, um, Michael G. Wilson was really into poker. And would hold poker school for the cast and crew. And they would play with real money. And he uh, was very much the sensei of poker on the set. And uh, Martin Campbell apparently binged just card movies like Cincinnati Kid, Maverick, Five Card Stud. He just was watching them endlessly, trying to figure out how to convey poker in an interesting way on screen. And he said, basically, he just realized it's about the players, not about the cards. Yeah. So just focus on your two main characters who are in the scene together. You'll be fine. So the movie had a budget of about 150 million dollars. Domestically, it did 167.4, which was actually a little bit more than Die Another Day, making it a very high-grossing Bond film for that era. And uh, internationally, it did 449.1, which was like almost double what Die Another Day did. So internationally, it was huge for a worldwide total of 616.5 million. In comparison, Die Another Day had done 432 um, interna- or worldwide.
0: Hang on, hang on, Cam. If you listen to people on the internet, mm. apparently this film killed the franchise. So how does that make sense? <laughs> they didn't. They don't say that now. They said that in like 2005. There's still people out there now saying that this was the death of Bond, uh, and 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 apparently not even canonical, which it blows my mind. Uh, shout out to those oh, people. Whatever. Get outside and touch some grass, please.
1: Who listens to people on the internet? Oh. Come Who on. Who needs him? Who Come needs him? <laughs> Uh, No, I, you know, I actually know Bond fans who never liked the Daniel Craig movies from the Mm -hmm. get-go. And it's, you know, I don't know what they're looking at or what they, you know, what they're basing that on. Uh, You know, maybe they want more humor and more silliness uh, in their Bond films. Uh, But, you know, Casino Royale really captured Fleming's novel. Uh, they had to create a, you know, completely new first act because the novel is very short. Uh, and you know, the bulk of the novel is the casino scenes. Um, so they, they knew they had to flesh it out and I thought they did a great job doing that. But once, you know, especially once they get to what is the adaptation of the novel, which is act two and three, it's, it's very faithful. It's, it's updated to the present day, but, um. It really captures it. And, you know, Craig was playing Bo- uh, Fleming's Bond. He, um, yeah. You know, just to talk about the actors real quick. I will always love Sean Connery because he was my first. Um, yep. I tend to say, you know, there is Sean Connery and then there's all the others. Uh, so Connery will always be my favorite no matter what. And, and but, um, you know, I really liked Dalton. I thought Timothy Dalton also was attempting to do Fleming's Bond, and I think he succeeded. Um, He was playing it seriously. In fact, I I really thought Eon was trying to do with uh, License to Kill what they eventually did later with Daniel Craig and his movies. They Mm -hmm. were trying to make an edgy, serious, violent, hard-hitting Bond film with License to Kill. And I know it was very controversial. Some people didn't like it. I really liked it. But I don't think people were ready for it then in 1989. They were not ready for a serious bond. Uh, So we kind of got back to the more, you know, uh, pizzazz, glamorous bond with the Brosnan films, which is fine. You know, Uh, they were good. They made a lot of money. Um, Brosnan was great. Um, But now, you know, once we got into the 2000s, you know, we were in the middle of a war, and, you know, we'd gone through 9-11, things were just darker, and I thought that approach really fit with what Fleming did. Uh, you know, he wrote Casino Royale in the doldrums of post-World War II, uh, when England was still trying to kind of get back on its feet, and the Cold War was, was a serious threat. And so you know his 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 books of the fifties really capture all that. Um, so I think they they were totally correct in making Casino Royale this dark, realistic, violent uh, treatise on what what the spy world is at that time.
2: And I mean, this movie connected with the zeitgeist. It landed at number four yeah. at the international box office that year. Um, it uh you know the top 5 number 1 was Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest number 2 was The Da Vinci Code it's hard to remember now that The Da Vinci Code is a real phenomenon uh number 3 was Ice Age 2 The Meltdown then Casino Royale and it just beat out Night at the Museum a lot of family films on there what a sandwich that is what what a sandwich indeed what, what, indeed what was
1: number what was number
2: 1 uh number 1 was Pirates of the Caribbean Dead Man's Chest are you serious <laughs> That was terrible. Yeah, yeah. It was That was terrible. The excitement <laughs> the excitement for that first sequel was palpable. People oh, were okay. so I, excited about that second one. And then, you know, it was
1: I was so disappointed in I was so disappointed in that movie. I just like walked out going, Oh, that was horrible. Um Yeah. Well, let's be
2: fair, in that top five there's really only one good movie and it's Casino Royale. <laughs>
1: well, Casino Royale was my number one film of that year. Uh and I rarely say that about a Bond film. Um so um yeah that was my number
2: 1. I, gee. Yeah, it it's it's funny like the Oscars did not agree. <laughs> like uh the, the the British were on the right page because the BAFTAs very much celebrated this movie. The Oscars zero nominations, but the BAFTAs gave it a, a win for best sound, but it was nominated for screenplay, actor, cinematography, editing, production design and visual effects. So Scott, you guys were on the right page.
1: Yeah. Well, Baftas, Baftas are uh, tend to favor British uh, films too,
0: and good films.
1: Um, no, but I agree. I agree with your assessment. You know, the Oscars have not been kind to Bond films, um, except quite recently. Maybe you know, with a few little technical nods and music nods.
2: You know, it's yeah. still, it
1: still boggles my mind that John Barry was never nominated for an Oscar for a Bond score.
2: That's just—it's insane. It's
1: that it is insane. Uh, just like Ennio Morricone was never nominated for a spaghetti western score, so
2: yeah.
0: Well, I think uh, I think that wraps us up on the behind the scenes. And Cam, I think you've uh, stripped our armor away. That's right. That's right. Yeah, let's talk about it. Casino Royale. It's the year twenty twenty two. What do we think about this film, Raymond? You're the guest. I'll go to you first. What's like your top line review of the film? What do you think about Casino Royale now?
1: I what I said before, I think it's one of the best Bond films ever made. Uh it's very faithful to Fleming. It uh it it uh it's hard hitting. It shows uh a an actor portraying the literary Bond very, very well. He may not look like what is described as the literary bond, but does it matter? Uh to me it didn't. And you know, I think it's well shot. It's beautiful to look at. It's got a great score. It's got a great cast. Uh, I don't think there is a false move really in it. I mean, I like I said, I would have preferred it have been Baccarat, but who, you know, in the long run, it's a
0: minor quibble. Um, Sweepy. I think
1: it's a, it, it's pretty much a perfect Bond
0: film. I, I, it's it's hard to argue with that assessment. And I think you know, we had um, Calvin Dyson on a couple of years ago, I think, at this point, to talk about Goldfinger. And we all sat there saying, how do we talk about what is potentially one of the perfect Bond films? How do you critique it? What what do you do? Because, oh, oh, that little thing didn't work. Raymond, you mentioned the Baccarat. It's a fair point that would rub some people the wrong way. And, yeah, absolutely right. And it's tough to evaluate. And so, uh, Cam, I'll throw it to you in a second. Sorry for jumping in and throwing the order off. But, like... No, no. For me... When I talk about films, especially franchise films and like genre films, sometimes they manage to create something that goes beyond the franchise itself. I think of something like Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan is not just a good Star Trek film. It's a good science fiction film. It's actually a good film. Character-driven film. Character-driven film. Absolutely. And I think this Casino Royale, the 2006 version, of course, is the bond equivalent of that it goes beyond being a good bond film and goes into the realm of being a fantastic film period
1: yes i agree with that Uh, that's why i you know i name it my number one film uh, you know i'm a big film historian i teach film history uh i i'm like barbara broccoli i appreciate art films and you know foreign films and all that and um I think Casino Royale was the best. My favorite film of of the year. I don't like to use the word best because uh, it's subjective. Um, but yeah, if, if if I was handing out the Oscars <laughs> that year, I would have <laughs> nominated Casino Royale and given it to it. So.
2: And this was not a particularly strong year for the Oscars either. Like this was actually a very poor year. So the fact it didn't get nominated is that much uh, that, that much more painful. Departed won, but I, and I like Departed, but.
1: I do like The Departed. I think it's a pretty mm-hmm. great film. I liked Little Miss Sunshine a lot. Another one of my favorite films that year was Children of Men.
2: Great film. Uh, oh yeah, I, really thought
1: I thought it was a terrific movie. Um, um, what else? Uh, there were some others, but uh, those
2: Borat were... was a big breakthrough. Oh,
1: Borat was great. <laughs> Borat was yep. really funny. Yeah. What a weird Borat.
0: juxtaposition: Bond, Casino Royale, and Borat in the same year. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. A weird but... year.
1: Yeah, but now uh, you know the departed. You know, Scorsese had needed his du- You know, he'd he'd never got the jackpot, and he finally did. And and uh, and I thought it was a better as a remake of Infernal Affairs. It was far superior. Although I do like Infernal Affairs, but Scorsese took that and just made it soar. Uh, I thought it was a great film, but
2: Casino
0: Royale. That's yeah,
2: I'd rather have that. Well, indeed. Cam, what about you? Like, what did you think now of Casino Royale? I mean, it's funny you were just talking about how it sort of exceeded what, you know, you think of perhaps the limits might be with, you know, genre entertainment or a franchise entertainment. And I remember like Roger Ebert had a quote where he, I don't remember which Bond movie it was, but he said basically that Bond movies could be great entertainments, but not great movies. And I think like that holds somewhat true. Um before Casino Royale and I think even he admitted like this one was the one that I have to revise that rule because I don't know that like Casino Royale if you ask me on a given day is my favorite Bond movie but I think it's the best Bond movie I think it's the one that nails all of the elements in an interesting way it's the first one that really tackles with interesting themes that carry through the course of the movie it has you know Barbara Broccoli has just more of a I think you know, art film pedigree and understanding of that kind of world, it feels like it's merging all the things you want from franchise entertainment, things like, you know, the parkour chase, the big action, all the kind of the flashier elements, but working in a level of intimate character drama, you just previously never really got in this franchise. I think you have a pretty solid organic growth with Bond's relationship with women, you know, starting with the, really the Dalton era and going through the Brosnan era, but this feels like next level, And I just had to admire watching the movie the other night. I was looking at the counter a lot because I wanted to pay attention to just how the movie broke down in terms of kind of chunks. And when you have Vesper Lynn, she's introduced at the 58 minute mark. And the scene in which she's kidnapped and, you know, hauled away and essentially kind of sets up the reveal of what this character has been up to is basically 45 minutes later. And so really the core of the entire relationship between those two characters of Bond and Vesper is 45 minutes of screen time that's mixed in with card games, fights in hallways and staircases, you know, stuff with Felix Leiter. And you just have to admire how unbelievably efficient they were in layering in this love story that carries you through the whole movie and makes it seem so simple. Like this movie makes every element feel simple and it had to be a lot of work. Like, I have to believe, you know, the Broccoli's are very hardworking. I'm sure there was a lot of sleepless nights putting this movie together. But it all comes across so sophisticated and graceful on screen that it's the type of movie I think a lot of producers look at and say, we want to do that, but the odds of achieving that are
0: very slim. Yeah, this is definitely the one you shoot for, isn't it? Like, this, this is the, I don't want to say it's the pinnacle. Um, But mm-hmm. and, and we mentioned earlier, I think Raymond mentioned it actually. The 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 roots of this back to things like uh, the Born Identity. And there's lots of films that it's taking things from. But if you go back to our uh, Born Roundtable episode, and, and John Orty, our guest from behind the stunts, was talking about how it, it really just like grabbing things that worked in other parts of the franchise and spy movies and action films at the time, and brought it all together into the successful package along with 007. I mean, what a way to reintroduce a character to potentially a whole new audience. You think about the watershed moment you had with Goldeneye that brought every, a lot of people back, brought me into Bond, personally. This is
2: another one of those moments in the history of the character. Definitely, yeah. I mean, and just how quickly they set up their Bond. Because I've talked about in the past, like watching, for example, Goldeneye the first time and like spending a lot of the movie kind of reframing okay, this guy is James Bond. I have to get used to this. And, you know, being by the time, you know, you rewatch the movie and you go into Tomorrow Never Dies, you're 100% on board. But I remember, you know, initially, it's kind of that learning curve of like, oh, I have to kind of learn to accept this new actor and what he's doing with the role. I did not have that with Daniel Craig. That opening of the black and white sequence it, it just instantly clicked. There was never a second in the moment where I was struggling with him as Bond. The bond was different. I'd never seen this version on screen, but it felt entirely bond.
1: I love the opening. Um, I, mm-hmm. I think it's one of the, the great pre pre credit sequence. I do have one other minor quibble. I wish they hadn't played around with the gun barrel logo. <laughs> in the 1st
2: first- oh, <laughs> Don't get me started on the gun barrel in the Craig era. I, I'm really fond of
1: that gun barrel logo and, and, they really kind of messed with it uh, the first three films. They finally got it back in place for the for Spectre and No Time to Die, uh, but uh, I wish they hadn't have done that. But you know,
0: minor quibble. You've got two now. You'll you'll have your six soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's 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 take it over to things that we do like. Um, uh, let's just pick a thing. I I've got a moment, but Raymond, I'll throw it to you just something. It can be a moment from the film or something about the film that really stands out to you.
1: Well, pretty much everything. Um, Like I said, the pre-credits black and white sequence is really awesome. Really kind of brings this sort of noir feel to it that uh, we've never really had before in the franchise. Um, The, you know, when, you know, the the iconic scene of Bond coming out of the water and showing that fantastic physique he has, uh, you know, I I could feel all the women in the the theater kind of go, you know and even even I kind of went wow <laughs> that guys
2: <laughs> i know i did <laughs> double o heaven <laughs> yeah
1: gee uh uh the um i thought the the scene at the airport where he's trying to stop the bomber was really exciting it was very well edited and 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 shot and cut and then once we got to the casino it was all familiar territory because i knew the book in and out and they were really you know, even despite the adaptation to modern times and, you know, changing it up just a little bit, it did follow kind of the sequence of events. And I was really digging it. It was just like, oh, man, this is Bond. This is Fleming. This is Bond. This is Fleming. I was I was really excited. Um, I loved um, I loved Mads Mickelson and the fact that they did the torture scene. Yeah, Uh, Not with a paddle, but they did, you know, I mean, you know, the device didn't matter. What they were doing to him was was what it was. And I never thought I would see that on screen, ever. Uh, But we did. And it was, wow, that was really tough. That was a tense scene.
0: It was brutal. Yeah. It was brutal to watch.
2: It
1: was. Craig, Craig was amazing. And so was Mads Mikkelsen. He was really, they were both exceptional in that scene.
2: And they've talked about, like, that scene was actually very easy to shoot. They did it in about a day. And the wow. whole, like, thinking was, like, oh, man, that must have been brutal. That must have been days on end. And they said, like, you know, I think it was Mads Mickelson said, like, they were just so on point. They knew their characters so well that that scene was just, like, very easy to realize versus maybe some of the other ones, which were more technical challenges.
1: Right, right. Uh, you know, I, I don't know if you guys know this, but I wrote a stage play based, uh, adapted from Casino Royale? Did you know that I was commissioned by Glidrose to to write a stage play?
0: I had not come up with my research, go on.
1: Yeah, yeah, this was in the 80s, 1980s, mm-hmm. around eight, 1985, after the Bedside Companion was published. I was right. still doing theater, and and I talked to them about, um, why hasn't there been a stage play, a Bond stage play? And they said, well, Eon has all these rights and everything, you know, except for Casino Royale. And I went, well, that's the one that would be... <laughs> The most adaptable to the stage because it's not a lot of outdoor sequences you know and they kind of thought about that and so they commissioned me to write a stage play uh i did it and in new york we had a staged reading of it unfortunately the Glidrose people could not come over and attend it so it only had that one staged reading and uh, it was a success but then, I don't know, some, I think some agent or something in a theatrical agent in Britain just kind of said, Bond will never work on stage. And so they they dropped the idea. And then the, the script kind of went into limbo um, because, you know, Eon eventually got all the rights. And so... The production rights belong to Eon. The publication rights belong to Ian Fleming Publications. So I don't own a thing. <laughs> I own I own the paper that it's typed on. Um, right. So you know we'll never see it. But you know I, I was intimately and in, you know I I intimately know Casino Royale very well, and I did do the torture scene on stage with a with a naked James Bond character actor.
0: That was going to be my question. Was gonna did well. A did the torture scene make it? So it sounds like it was a yes.
1: Yeah, yeah. And the way I devised it was that you would build a a, a chair with a false bot with a, you know, it would it would have a a a, a, a barrier mm-hmm. that the audience couldn't see, uh, and so the, the front the the legs would be covered and the sides so that the guy could still hit it, you know, from the bottom, and you'd hear the boom, you know, um and they would not know that it's, you know.
0: And and was it Baccaro or poker? It was Baccaro. And uh, the way I did that,
1: you had screens above the tables uh, where you could see the hands of mm-hmm. what they were holding, the cards.
0: Um, Well, I mean,
2: Cam, what about you? Something you want to highlight? This is a very difficult one. I think with a lot of movies, there's, like, a, a standout element. But, like, with me... I kind of sit where Raymond does, where it's like all of the elements are just firing on all cylinders, so it's like to kind of like mention, you know, Mads Mikkelsen's unbelievable performance, you're like, well, hold on, that's just a, a fraction of what works. To me, it's like this movie just crystallizes everything that's effective about Bond, and you know, Raymond, you're mentioning the action, and I think that was, I think, a bit of a concern that maybe people had initially when they talked about rebooting, you know, the the franchise. And bringing Bond back in this kind of more stripped down form was like, well, we like these movies as action movies. And I think one of the genius elements of this movie is the way it manages to deliver character drama, but also inject all the action fans were familiar with. I think that really helped get them on board because not only were they getting action, they were getting action that was among the best we've ever gotten in the franchise, if not the best. That opening parkour chase is, I mean, next level. Um, even, you know, rewatching it just the other night, it's unbelievable the stunt work going on, how they conceived that sequence. And that was, um, I believe, um, Gary Powell and Martin Campbell were the ones that basically bashed that one out themselves. That was not written into the screenplay. That was the two of them working that through. And it's just an unbelievable sequence. And that extends to the whole movie. Like, they're shooting scenes that could be, you know, in a different movie, maybe a little flat, like the card game. And they shoot it with the intention intensity of, like, an action sequence so that the movie just pulls you. It's so propulsive. And the fact that it's just buoyed by this collection of just killer performances, it just feels like it's, it's a ride. Like, it's an incredibly well-paced two-hour-and-twenty-whatever-it-is-minute movie. And I have seen a lot of movies that are two hours that drag. Scott and I have covered movies that are, what, like 85 minutes that drag. And the fact that this one just flies by is a real testament to, you know, the filmmaking. And just the fact that, like, with all of the elements just crystallizing together into something so known, but at the same time almost like a rediscovery, it just manages to capture your imagination consistently.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you know, I'm so glad, and I mentioned it at the top, but I'm so glad that we have both Sebastian Foucan and Joseph Milson this week from that crane scene that you mentioned, Cam just to sort of help us break that scene down, two separate interviews for you there. I mean, both fascinating and different perspectives on the scene as well. One's more action-focused, a little bit more character-focused. Um, and, yeah, breaking that down and, and all the influences, is, you know, as, as John said, everything sort of conversing to one big unit in this, this big Bond film and trying to reinvent it. Um, I imagine I can understand why people were scared, uh, and it being this whole new way of delivering a Bond story. But I, I think they're definitely stuck the landing. For me, if I'm picking out something, and as Cam said, as Raymond said, there's so many things you could choose to highlight. I mean, I, I was going to talk about the amazing sort of relationship that's built up in that short period of time between Bond and Vesper. It's so it's like delicate and loving and caring, which is not something we've seen fairly often from Bond. We've seen it a few times. I always think about Bond and Cara in the Living Daylights. I think that's a very touching relationship too. Diana Rigg. Um Diana rig, of course, on, on Her Majesty is great, cool. Um, but, like, for me, I think I'm going to go more on the sort of aesthetics of it all and and things like the score is fantastic. They're a new sound. They're bringing a new Bond theme, basically. And the whole You Know My Name with Chris Cornell, like I mentioned at the top, that whole tune sort of sticks through the Craig run. They create a new sound for 007. And then, like, you think about the daniel kleinman credit sequence is that the best they've ever created i it, it's so visually stunning i think i've watched it four times on youtube today just to sort of try and break it down there's so much going on in that title sequence and it's just gorgeous and everything is firing on all cylinders i i i'm we're going to go to dislikes in a second and i'm struggling to prepare myself for what i'm going to talk <laughs> about it's 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 really tough but for me, like sound is very important. I'm a musical person, and this film has such a unique sound—not um, just in sound design as well. Like even things like they—they they went out of their way to record the Aston Martin in all the different ways to make it sound more aggressive when it drives. It's so much effort and care was taken into put into this film, and
2: I—I uh, I think it. Well, it still shows now. It doesn't feel like a movie made by people that have been making James Bond movies for x amount of years in a way. It almost feels like sometimes when they hand a franchise to you know new filmmakers who have like this life they want to bring to it, they're so excited and It's so exciting to see these veteran producers feel that energized again about creating a new universe and really falling in love with what they're doing like that doesn't always happen. you know so often we're disappointed when you have these veteran filmmakers returning to a franchise that they've left behind and it doesn't usually work out and just to see them so energized just what like four years after die another day and having an entirely different creative spin it's just unbelievable to see yeah again like i said it's a hard one to review because there's so much good to talk about but well i i do have maybe one thing that would be a way of kind of showcasing things what's everyone's favorite performance in the movie
1: I would say, I would say, I would say Craig's, um, yeah, yeah. I mean, without, if, if he hadn't have been as good as he was, the movie would not have been as good. Um, I think Craig sells it. Um, after that, I would say Mickelson.
2: Okay. So like Mickelson for your supporting is the one that really jumps out. And why does, why does he jump out so much to you when you examine him, obviously against the rich pantheon of Bond villains?
1: Well, he was very sinister, and uh, you know, a lot of a lot of the a lot of the Bond villains are kind of campy. You know, you got to admit it; mm-hmm. uh, they they do oh, have yeah. their <laughs> moments of chewing the scenery,
2: <laughs> joyfully so. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Mickelson doesn't do that. He's he's very, you know, he's creepy in this movie. Uh, you know, the, the scar. You know, the makeup and the scar and everything, and um, his sort of. Every When he does allow himself to laugh at something, it's just kind of a, you know, uh, I thought he was, I thought he really was chilling. He was, he was real.
2: I love the way he um, flips like the chip, the chips in his hand oh, yeah, yeah. through the, yeah. the poker scenes. Like yeah. so cool. Yeah. And yeah. just like all these like little touches he brings just, it's like they all just add up. And I love like kind of the sweatiness and desperation of the character because right. He's someone who's so controlled, but, like, that makes him seem even scarier is when he starts getting scared himself.
1: Right, right. Well, during the torture scene when Bond has the quip about, you know, please, a little more to the left. And you can see Mickelson at first kind of goes, what the fuck is he talking about? And then he kind of reads, oh, he's joking. And he kind of allows himself to kind of laugh at that. Oh, you know, you've got a sense of humor.
2: (laughs) Oh, yeah. It was perfect,
1: you know? I mean great characterization
2: and very different from what we'd seen before when yeah. you look at you know orson wells there was no magic act
0: <laughs> that would have been uh, well, amazing halfway through on. the card
2: game <laughs> where was the levitation i needed levitation in this film <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or uh, peter Laurie as well in the uh in the you know the climax episode from the 50s right. so it i it was again just really appreciated that they had entirely different tact on that character and really made him come to life um what about you scott I was thinking about it whilst you two were just talking there,
0: but I, I think I'm going to go for Eva Green, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with Raymond. I, like Daniel Craig sells the film. Oh, yeah. There is, everything is on that guy's shoulders, and he's got big shoulders, so I think he carries it pretty well. <laughs> uh, but like Eva is, I think, the heart of the film. Mm-hmm. And there's a moment that drew me back in my second watch today when, when um, Bond drops off the dress, and then she drops off the dinner jacket. And there's dinner jackets and then there's dinner jackets. And Bond puts it on, and it's the first time you see him in a tux, and it's kind of like a big reveal for the film. It's not really scored heavily, it's not a heavy moment, but she just peeks around the corner and just smiles at him, looking at himself in the mirror. It's like a little bit a little fun way of disarming the character, making it kind of funny and but not like ha 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 funny. It's it's just really nice. I, I still have problems with how the Vespa character is sort of wrapped up at the end, but that's not on Eva Green. That's more of a, I just have trouble with that character's arc, personally. Mm-hmm. Um,
2: but yeah, Eva Green all the way for me. But what about you, Cam? I also, it's the Eva Green performance, I think, just like really, not only just carries through this movie, but also hangs over all the, you know, Craig films to come. And it's like, I think just the, the intelligence of the filmmakers to have scenes like, you know, where she's in shock after the fight on the floor of the shower and they're sitting in there. Like, you didn't get scenes like that traditionally in Bond movies. Like, there's a vulnerability to that relationship that really works. But I think one of the most genius moves they made, period, was, like, in her first scene on the train was where her and um, Bond, like, size each other up. And, um like, Bond isn't particularly right in sizing her up. Uh, like he's talking about, you know, how she's single and all this sort of stuff. And um it's like elements like that I think are really smartly worked in the fact that throughout the movie you don't know who her character is, but also at the same time, you know, Bond is saying like this is a character with no tells and we are genuinely surprised I think by the reveal. Like they're using well-worn source material, so anyone who had read the book knew ultimately where that character was going to go, but if you hadn't read it, I don't think you would have seen necessarily where it was gonna go. And I think they do a very good job working in kind of the theme of like Bond's relationship with women, the way that like, you know, you have the the death of um Solange earlier in the movie, and then you realize like that what Bond what can happen when Bond is involved with women, but then how he emotionally reacts by the end of this story, um, and the coldness that he brings on initially. And so like, it's the way that they manage to balance that relationship that I think is so effective. And Eva Green just consistently works and just the idea of basically people showing their hand is a theme carried through the entire movie and the idea of reveals tied into the poker yeah we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling
0: all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research, equipment, hosting or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair we're putting
2: out the call for your support. That's right, as you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got
0: in our crosshairs this month?
2: Well, Scott, we're continuing with the Dirty Harry franchise with 1973s magnum force so do you feel lucky punk well do ya
0: and if that sounds delicious then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spy but before this message self destructs cam resume the spy jinx well we we said all the nice things about the film that we can let's just if there's any critiques we can make i know Raymond, you've mentioned the Baccarat, and you've mentioned... Uh, the, was it the chair, the, the other thing you had? No, no, the gun barrel. The, the gun, bar- gun barrel, thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> um, what a what nitpick, I mean, eh? No, There's fine. people listening that agree with you completely, to be absolutely fair, that like yeah. completely agree. But yeah. I'll throw it to you. Is there any other things about the film, just in retrospect now, that either you would change as a as a writer yourself, that you would change, or, or in presentation, but something you disliked, perhaps?
1: I can't think of anything. Uh... I mean, Scott, you're you're not going to like this, but I'm not a huge you're not I'm not a huge fan of the the theme the the main title song.
0: Okay, okay, no, that's absolutely fine. What about it doesn't work for you?
1: I, I rank fairly low on the list of main title songs. Sure, I'm sorry, but uh, don't
0: don't apologize. Yeah, it's
1: fine. it. I mean, it was okay. Uh, I just felt like it wasn't. You know, it didn't have a melody that was an earworm. You know. Usually, you can walk out of a Bond film and you know the theme of the movie. You know, you can you can walk out humming "You Only Live Twice" or "Goldfinger" or uh, you know, even you know, nobody does it better or uh, "For Your Eyes Only." <laughs> you know, I'm naming some of the iconic ones. Um, you know, I could not recall the theme song after I walked out of the movie, and even later. Um, so I had a problem with that. But it was okay. I mean, you know, you watch it. It fits, it fits with the movie at the time.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I'm curious, you know, Raymond, how, how do you feel about, you know, larger picture? Just the song choices of the Craig era in general?
1: Uh, the last three, I think, are pretty good. Uh, the first
2: two. So you're a fan of the Spectre one?
1: Yeah. The, the second one is probably being my least favorite title song of all.
0: Would it be fair to say you lean more towards the ballads then
1: oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah, I do, because I don't know tradition is tradition um and they tend to have a melody that that works more in fitting in with the the rest of the score um yeah, I think so uh i'm I'm not sure about rock and roll as a it, you know heavy heavy metal guitar uh working really. Uh, I mean, there was Live and Let Die, but that was different. That wasn't just, you know, in your face electric guitar.
0: It also um, has a reggae breakdown section. So, like, yeah, 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 exactly. It's all over the place.
1: Yeah. I mean, but it was also orchestral, real, very orchestral. Mm-hmm. Um, so, th- that was kind of jarring for me um, with that kind of hard rock sound. And then then the rap, the rapping of the next one was really jarring. <laughs> so, yeah, but they took uh, a swing. <laughs> yeah, know, they tried. I, I, I do think that David Arnold is it was a, a a good composer. And I, I like a lot of the score, um, especially the love, the love themes, the the, the more lyrical mm-hmm. moments, uh, I think are really good. And they really do kind of hark back to the Barry sound.
2: Well, he may have had, like, one of the biggest challenges a Bond composer had, had in a long, long, long time, which was, like, they didn't want to play the Bond theme throughout the course of the movie until the very end. And until the very end, and I thought that was brilliant. Yeah, and he had to create this whole musical identity just without using the standards. There were hints.
1: There were hints. There were hints of it.
2: Mm-hmm. Like, when he yeah. walks mm-hmm. in and
1: first puts on the tuxedo, you kind of get that... Boom, boom. Boom! Like it wants to go there, but nope, we're not going to give it to you yet. <laughs> you know, I
0: thought
1: that was great. That was great.
0: Um, I'll throw it to you then, Cam.
2: What, what's your dislike if you're going to pick one? There's one little storytelling one that I struggle with, and it's the Mathis stuff dealt with towards the end, where we have Bond sitting at the table. He's just had dinner with Vesper after the poker game. And he goes, Mathis. And I feel like things get a little murky there as to the fact that it was her sending the, I guess, the, the message to Le Chiefer about the card game. But I feel like that information is conveyed in a way that's very confusing. And it's something that I've gone back and, you know, I rewatched it multiple times at this point in my life. Rewatched it the other night and I'm just tracking it moment to moment. And I don't know that it comes across particularly clear. At the end, they're like, no, no, Mathis wasn't in on this. And it's like okay, like I feel like they're trying to communicate this to the audience because they didn't make it particularly clear what Mathis's role even was at that point in the movie.
1: I agree with you. Uh, it's not clear why, how Bond leaps to the thought that Mathis betrayed him. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I was qu- I was
2: going. No, wait a minute.
1: How did he? Why did he think that? And da-da-da-da. You know, I. Yeah, you're right. Forgot about that.
2: There's the part two where Bond's being tortured and, um, you know, La Chiffre says, oh, he was my friend Mathis. And so it makes it even murkier. <laughs> You're like, wait, hmm. what? Um, so I-, I can kind of understand like in that Craig moment if they, where he has the revelation, if there was like a flashback they want to show or something to indicate, but then they didn't want to because of the Vesper reveal coming. I have no idea. Like there was a choice made and I feel like it's murky.
0: I think I think that's fair. Uh, I I had trouble with kind of the wrap up of of the film in in some of people's allegiances and and why Vespa turns still kind of bugs me. But I, it, it is what it is. What bugs you about it? It just I I know at the end sort of M sums it all up for you and and kind of tells you what happened just about. But every time I hear it, I have to kind of go back and go wait, why did she do it? Like it's something to do with a boyfriend owed money and something like that. But I, I just feel like she's madly in love with this guy and he's a secret agent. She could have just been like, hey, could you give me a hand here? Mm-hmm. And then it'd be like, oh, yeah, I'm James Bond. I'll help you out. And then it would have been absolutely fine. I I, I feel like the the, the heel turn, if it is even a heel turn, feels just very quick. And I, and I never understand why she turns. Every single time I watch the film, that end bit, just, I
2: struggle with it. I think I, I know what you mean. I can kind of buy she wouldn't fully trust him because he's shown to be so reckless throughout the course of the movie Mm -hmm. that this is not the Roger Moore Bond or the Sean Connery Bond, you know, where I think you might have that trust in him pulling it off. The idea is he's reckless and he's blowing, you know, card games. He's uh, like someone you wouldn't necessarily trust to get you out of trouble. But I I think like it's I can completely buy that, you know, she's in love with this boyfriend and is going to do this to save him. Mm -hmm. Like that works for me. It's kind of the line tossed up by Judy Dench at the end where she says, well, she was, you know, trying to save you. That's why she did, was doing it, which is entirely like, I feel like an assumption on the uh, Judy Dench M's part. But uh, yeah, um, it, it works for me, but it is, I think, something that one could easily find quibbles with. And my only quibble I was going
0: to bring up is actually, you know, Raymond took my music. Hmm. I'm going to take Raymond's tanker chase scene in the airport. Oh, for me, it doesn't particularly work. I don't like it that much. It feels like it could be any action film. It doesn't. It's not really a Bond thing to me. Apart from maybe switching the bomb around to the guy's uh, waistband. That's a nice little trick. And the smile. And the smile. But you could put John McClane in there. It would be the same thing.
2: <laughs> I think they needed to get people on board. Because the first hour is essentially all the investigation and those big action sequences. Mm -hmm. I think they felt they needed to get people on board for the card game to come and more of the character drama. I really like that sequence on the tarmac. So I think it's just staged so incredibly well that, like, is it necessary? I mean, maybe not, but I find it so propulsive and exciting that... I don't care. <laughs> I just don't care. It's interesting, though. It's the um, first of, I guess, two times where a Bond villain is going to dress up like a police officer to evade capture. We will see that again in Skyfall. Very true.
0: Well, I think before we get to the knock list, uh, we're going to have just any final notes just to throw it out there. Uh, Raymond, do you have any final notes on, on the film itself? Anything that springs to mind? Anything you want to bring up?
1: Uh, I just want to... Iterate if if anyone from Eon is listening, I think uh, this is one of the you know star achievements <laughs> of the entire franchise. And uh, Casino Royale is a great movie. Uh, Daniel Craig is great. Um, I just i I think it's fantastic, and I think Ian Fleming would have loved it. So um, I think that's that's important to say.
0: <laughs> that is that is mm-hmm. important to say. Very yeah, and yeah. a very good point. I, I, I do agree with you there. But Cam, what about you? What do you have for final notes on Casino
2: Royale? So to me, like, there's a lot of elements to me that also work um, really unbelievably well. And when you're talking about Casino Royale, it's so hard to get granular because you're just more so impressed by the whole package. We've talked about why that package works so well. Yeah, you are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> but there's like elements, you know, like just the Judi Dench performance, bringing that You know, not the same character necessarily, but that kind of that fierceness and putting her opposite Craig and getting to see her sort of evolution starting of that relationship here. Jeffrey Wright, you know, kind of a small little role, but has so much impact. Like on my Felix Blandometer ratings, like he's not on the scale. We don't don't measure Jeffrey Wright on the scale because he is just magnetic every second he's on screen like the support- he's the he's the Felix Leiter that's right he is the that's yeah. right yeah like to me we had never truly seen a Felix Leiter that stuck I think a lot of fans like David Hedison a lot I do as well but if you ask a very casual Bond fan about Felix Leiter you're gonna get blank stares and I think after Jeffrey Wright took over that's not the case I'm not sure. I
0: completely agree. I think he had a couple of just he was there for a little bit performances during his time with Craig. But maybe the second one, the second one. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. But it, in this one and No Time to Die, actually, I think both standout performances. And you know, let's just go back to M. We skip past Judy Dench coming back to the role. You know, sorry continuity nerds, but this is a different M played by the same actor but uh, i I do find it interesting that bond does say oh i didn't know m stood for and it was implied that it was an m so i'm gonna say m stands for mother and it's all connected
2: to 1998's the avengers i think you just uh broke the movie scott you may have broken all cinema with that one uh (laughs) any reference to the avengers yeah um but just like there's so many like little touches in this movie that make it all kind of work um the fact that like the villains aren't dumb mm-hmm. a lot of bond villains they'll portray these like megalomaniacal kind of geniuses but they're not necessarily the smartest people when you really break it down on paper um look at goldfinger just like hanging out with bond at like a horse ranch throughout the course of the movie it's like just, just kill this guy <laughs> but like you know you look at like even like kind of minor villain characters uh, for example carter at, at the start who's like touching his ear. They pick up on that. They clock this guy as a spy. You also see when, like, you know, the warlord um, shows up in the hotel to, you know, try to get his money back from Le Chifre, and Bond is kind of, like, trying to put on this act of, like, you know, making out with Vesper in the hallway so they don't look at him. That warlord spots that earpiece in his ear. Like, it's very observant, dangerous villains who aren't portrayed dumb. They are not, like, disposable henchmen that, like, populate so many other Bond films, it kind of raises the level of tension of the movie by having villains who are able to kind of, you know, sniff out like Bond being a potential adversary.
0: I I completely agree with the portrayal of the villains being very strong in this. I It wasn't something I brought up in the dislikes. And I, I don't know if Raymond agrees or not, but, you know, I thought that um, one of the things this film struggled with is not having a central villain. Right. Like, if you're going to pick it apart, like, Le Chiffre is kind of the central villain you've got Mads Mikkelsen it's a big casting it's probably the central villain most people will say but he's off at like the hour and 40 minute mark and there's still another 40 minutes left of the film
2: yeah the villain is more I think the like the larger criminal conspiracy because Mr. White is a strong element throughout this movie as well who we haven't mentioned Jesper Christensen kicking off what is going to be I think a very effective ongoing villain arc and used very sparsely but very effectively so I, I feel like Le Chiffre is such a small part of a larger picture that it's more about Bond exposing something. And they aren't using the term, you know, specter by name yet, but that's kind of what they're hinting towards. Um, even at the time, though, when I saw the movie, it was like, oh, Le Chiffre is kind of like a low-level Villain Like, this isn't a high-ranking character. We're kind of climbing a ladder that's going to go somewhere. The sense Mm -hmm. of serialization was, I think, made very clear for moment one in this particular reboot. Like, I think you knew that they were going to build to something. So, I don't hold it against the movie, but yeah, in comparison to other Bond movies, like uh, Le Chiffre is not Hugo Drax, you know, there from the beginning to the end.
0: No, but in terms of, as, as we've all spelled out through this episode, these are minor gripes, and it's mm-hmm. really hard to pick any major flaw with this film, because I don't think there is any.
2: Yeah. Um, another note I had was, you know the Italian like, recovery center Bond goes to after his traumatic torture? Mm-hmm. Did you recognize that place? I thought I did,
0: actually. I haven't looked it up, and I was going to, but is it connected to a certain Cary Grant film?
2: It is—I uh, don't I don't think so, but um, the more obvious comparison is the place is called—and I'm going to butcher the name, so I apologize to any Italian speakers—Villa del Balbianello. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I'm sorry, folks. I want to apologize, but nonetheless, that was the— I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, we're all <laughs> sorry. That was the location of Naboo. From the Star Wars prequels. That's oh. the that view that he has is basically where you saw Anakin and Padme holding hands, getting married at the end of episode two, and it's featured throughout those prequels. Oh, okay.
0: Okay. I'll have to look I, I was thinking of the uh, Cary Grant
2: film To Catch a Thief. Oh, that was all in the south of France, I think. I don't think they went to Italy.
0: Okay. It does have very nice vistas like that though, with like large rivers. Mm. That was probably where I got the connection. Also a travelog film, yeah. funnily enough.
2: Yeah. yeah. A um, couple other just little notes I had. The idea of, like, this being kind of the first reactive Bond as an action character. When you look at the other ones, Bond is very poised and cool. Um, He rarely seems to kind of be potentially, you know, scared or alarmed or anything. Like, it's always a sense of Bond's in cool, kind of in-control mode. Whereas, like, I like that this Bond is very reactive. He you know, takes in what's happening to him and responds. Like you think of the guy, you know, hurling the gun at Bond and Bond catches it and throws it back at him. But that carries through the course of the movie. Him, you know, barreling through a wall in the parkour chase. Mm-hmm. There's like a sweatiness and an effort to bond in action in this movie that we'd never really seen before. You see shades of it in Dalton. We've seen the sweatiness with you. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Um and David Niven <laughs> 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 But like um yeah like you have strong action stuff in the Dalton era in the Brosnan era but I feel like they took it to a next level probably inspired by Bourne heavily but like even still there's a there's an exertion to the Craig Bond that we just really hadn't seen before
0: well it was something I was going to bring up in the like section but you know there was so many other things to talk about is this harder edge Hmm. and 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 Raymond you know you spoke about the connection to to License to Kill and, and Timothy Dalton but, you know, one thing I talk about with Sebastian Foucault in our Spy Master interview um, coming in the next couple of days is just the fact that this film does this... The, the perfect cinema thing of show, don't tell. It shows the powerhouse that Bond is and how he's, he's got much more of an edge now. But it also has a softer side, but it doesn't, like, talk about it at length. You see Bond running through a wall to get to the suspect in question, to get to Sebastian Foucault's character of Malacca. That tells you more about Bond than, you know, 10 minutes of dialogue could. He is an unstoppable force. And and you get that from just a man running through
2: a drywall. Yeah. And, like, this movie, you know, layers and things are going to pay off in future movies. The whole 007s having a low, or 00s having a low life expectancy is something that's going to definitely pay off in a few movies from now. Um, Wait, what do you mean? I haven't seen No Time to Die yet. <laughs> Uh yeah, not no spoilers, Scott. <laughs> oh, oh my. Yeah, just like various elements of this and like the way this movie also builds in little reveals, you know, the mm-hmm. the the Vesper Martini the tropes we know as Bond. We have seen movies that have done this horribly. I think of like Solo, a Star Wars story where they're revealing how he got his name and how he got his like holster and things like that. And it's so desperate. The dice. Yeah. The dice that was so important to Han Solo. Oh God. It's so desperate. Whereas here, all of them feel very elegantly employed to the point where like, they didn't even do all of them. They're like, we can kind of work some of some of the other things in later. It it feels Mm -hmm. all earned. So I, I really appreciate the movie.
0: Well you get the D B five as well. Like where mm-hmm. he first picks up the D B five, it's from a card game in Montenegro. Yeah. Like that's kind of cool. Like it, it's and it's again, almost I'd say show don't tell. It doesn't say like, oh this is gonna be my D B five for life, I'm gonna import it back to London and put it in a box so I can rescue Judy Dench in Skyfall. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't doesn't set any up, but you just kinda of get the idea that's where he picks up his D B five. And and I know you're gonna throw to me in a second about notes I've got, but my one note was just more of a discussion point, and that's about like, and this is kind of the retrospective kind of way, so it's, it's kind of hard to talk about. But just maybe I'll just talk about it. But like, we don't know necessarily what we want anymore. They make reboots of things and go in different ways. This is a more action styled Bond, and it was well received. We were they they stuck the landing on this one. Okay but you take other franchises that have come back and try to do it differently you take like the the star wars sequels okay the first one was basically a riff of of a new hope but they tried to do different things uh you know the last jedi was a, a different star wars film altogether and that was panned by a lot of people i i don't know what the rise of skywalker was but and so like i don't know whether you know i suppose like the question is was it a good idea to 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 roll the dice on this one yes it paid off Um, But when I hear people online saying about, oh, it should go back to... Because I'm talking about now, like for Bond 26, what do people want? And they say, oh, it should go back to it being funny or we should go back to it being set in the 60s. I don't think we know what we want because I don't think people were clamoring for this in 2006. Yeah. But
2: we got it and it worked. Yeah. That's like, I am far less willing to predict Barbara Broccoli than I might have been with the old, you know, when Cubby Broccoli was making the films, for example. Mm-hmm. Like Barbara Broccoli's tastes, as we've talked about through the episode, are just so diverse that, like, I don't know what's popping out to her as a really exciting thing to do with the character because she has talked about how she doesn't think about what's going on right now; she's thinking about what's going to happen tomorrow. So I, I'm just really excited to see what her and Michael G. Wilson are going to come up with.
0: Right, it's time. We're going to talk about The knocklist. We're going to hop in the shower and turn up the heat. Raymond, you're our guest. The question goes to you first. The thing we do on this show every week is we like to talk about uh, the best spy movies ever. So every film we tackle, we ask if it makes The Knock List, which is our list of the need-to-see official classics of Spy Hard. It's a terrible acronym. Cam came up with it. It wasn't my doing. I like that you say it's terrible and then assign me credit for that one. Thank you, Scott. Yeah, yeah. Ab- absolutely. But so... Uh, guests get a vote whenever they come on. Um, the question will go to you first. list the best spy movies of all time. Is Casino Royale 2006 making that list for you?
1: Absolutely, it would. I think it would. I wish I'd known this question earlier. I would have prepared a list. Um, but, uh, you know, I can go back to the 1930s for, for good spy movies. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, some of my favorites would be You know, Man Who Knew Too Much by Hitchcock, The 39 Steps by Hitchcock, The Lady Vanishes by Hitchcock. Um, Notorious. Notorious -hmm. Notorious is one of my favorites. Um, Odd Man Out um, is terrific. Uh, The Third Man. Um, There's some there's some wonderful stuff. Um, Gosh. Um, And then, you know, in the 60s, even though, you know, well, from Russia would love Dr. No from Russia would love would be up there um i would they are on the list yeah yeah i would put the Ipcrest file in there um, damn right <laughs> <laughs> i'm with you <laughs> raymond <laughs> uh, i would put, i would actually put arm and flint in there for fun um, yeah hey i <laughs> yep, yes. made the list yep <laughs> yeah yeah uh i put the parallax view in there um Ooh. the uh
0: you're, you're, you're naming our list right now raymond this is perfect <laughs> every-
1: uh the um uh uh gosh the name's escaping me now uh the robert redford one in the 70s uh um
0: three days of the condor three days Mm -hmm. of the condor uh
1: yes that one um uh terrific stuff um gosh um i wish i'd yeah if i'd known i would have made a a a list
2: you've really validated our show thank you (laughs) Yeah, you've made you've made us feel good about choosing these
0: films too. Like a, a man who talked who's written books about spies says these are the best ones and so do we. So that's that's good. Yeah, I'll,
1: I'll, the spy the spy, who came, the spy who came in from the cold.
0: Well, um, i um well I'll, do, I'll drop you an email and you can send me your top ones and I'll put them online and we can we can compare notes and see what people think.
1: Okay. Um, there you go.
0: Well, that sounds like a yes
2: from you, Raymond. Cam, what about you? Big yes. Like There is no shadow of a doubt in my mind that Casino Royale belongs on the list. Um, There's been debate about some of the, especially some of those Connery ones like You Only Live Twice or Thunderball, where it became much more of a discussion of iconography and sort of the movie's importance in pop culture and things like that. To me, Casino Royale doesn't need any of that. It has it. It definitely, you know, Batman Begins may have um, you know, kicked off kind of the the gritty kind of reboot trend. Mm Mm-hmm. Casino Royale continued in that and really delivered, but like I don't even need to examine any of that. All that I can put aside and say purely as a movie, as a two and a half hour drama, as a Bond adventure, as an action movie, as a character piece, it all is just so solidly entertaining and just unbelievably elegant. So to me, big time, yes, it's on the knock list 100%. Right,
0: well, that's two yeses, so congratulations, gents. The film has made the list, but I still get a vote, so here is my two cents. Casino Royale 67 is much better than this film. (laughs) I'm kidding. Of course it's making the knock list. This is... I said it earlier. It's a watershed moment in Bond history. There's only a few. Goldfinger, Golden Eye, Honor, Magic Secret Service, and probably this.
2: Yeah, and I think even... When you look at, like, cultural impact, I think it's Goldfinger. Thunderball's debatable because it was a huge phenomenon, but how much of that is because of the success of, of, of Goldfinger, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's tough yeah. to say, right? Like Riding the wave, Exactly. the pun. Exactly. Like, I think that you could really make an argument that uh, Casino Royale is the next biggest thing after Goldfinger. I think One of the Matches is important, too, because it's the first one without Sean Connery. It is, but, like, not popular in its time, and it's one that is more popular with, like, Bond fans versus, like, your average, you know, Bond watcher. Yeah. Well, let's make it simple. It's a yes from Me Too.
0: How could it not be a yes? It is potentially one of the greatest spy movies of all time, let alone one of the greatest Bond movies of all time. And so with that, three yeses. Of course, Casino Royale 2006 is making the knock list. And as such, the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. Well, Raymond, I want to thank you for joining us this week to talk about Bond, the 60th anniversary. What a big week. But before we let you go, what is it you're currently working on at the moment?
1: Well, I have a new book coming out October 4th here in the states um it's called the mad mad murders of marigold way uh it is a dark comedy about a murder that takes place uh right at the beginning of the pandemic i wrote it in may 2020 and that's when it takes place uh, well i started it in may that's when it takes place uh and it takes place in my neighborhood although i've changed the name to protect the guilty um and it's a i tried to do a coen brothers style you know, crime story. Mm-hmm. So it's got this sort of twisted absurdity to it that's, you know, hopefully funny. <laughs> um, and uh, I think it's one of my favorite books I've written. And uh, it's coming out soon. So um, it'll be available on ebook and hardcover and a month later on audiobook.
0: Well, we'll uh, we'll put links to that in the show notes below so people can find that uh, online and get a copy, of course. And I'll be grabbing one, too. And, you know, online, where can people find you like a website or Twitter, Instagram? Where where are you hanging around?
1: Uh, well, Raymond Benson dot com is my website. Uh, you can always find stuff there. Uh, my Facebook Gets a lot of action. Uh, I have a personal page and an author page. The personal page is where all the action is, really. So uh, find me on there. Um, The author page is more just sort of announcements. Uh, Twitter is at Raymond Benson, and um, you'll find me there, too.
0: Perfect. So, yeah, we'll we'll connect that all in the show notes below. And, again, Raymond, thank you for taking the time to talk with us this week. It's been an absolute pleasure.
1: Thanks a lot. This was a lot of fun, and uh, I enjoyed it. Yeah. I'd,
2: I'd come on again. <laughs>
0: cool. We'll have you back. Don't worry.
2: We've still got some Hitchcocks to tackle. Yeah,
0: we've got plenty of Hitchcocks to go. Absolutely. Well, there you go, folks. We want to thank Raymond again for stepping in to the breach. I couldn't have thought of a better person to have on the show to lead us into the Daniel Craig era and to deal with such a an important Bond movie. Definitely. But the party does not stop here. It's the 60th anniversary of James Bond, so we thought we would roll out the gold carpet and really celebrate Casino Royale. So we have two spy master interviews for you coming this Friday. The next episode release, we are sitting down with Carter himself, Mr. Joseph Milson. Hopefully, he's not got his finger in his ear when he speaks to us. But uh, yeah, it's looking to be a really fun chat with him, and that's followed hot on the heels with Mr. Sebastian Foucan, who plays Malacca, who you will know from that Crane sequence uh, as the man running away from James Bond. And, I mean, if you look at the chap's credentials, he basically invented free running. There's a lot to discuss, and it is a fantastic discussion with a lot of behind-the-scenes insight as to how that scene was put together. Uh, Yeah, do not miss out on that. That's coming next Tuesday from this release point. But Cam. I believe we have one last present for everyone.
2: Yes, we are going to do a review of the 1954 television adaptation of Casino Royale from the TV series Climax. You know, we've talked about Casino Royale 67. We've talked about 2006. Let's go back to the origins when Barry Nelson was James Bond or Jimmy Bond, as I believe he was called.
0: Yes, I mean... it we'll be discussing where this started, where the the first adaptation of Casino Royale. And with that, we will be creating a trilogy of Casino Royale reviews. You can choose your favorite of the bunch. It'll just be me and Cam for this one. Uh, It's only a short episode, I think about 50 odd minutes, because it's, of course, a TV show. Although keen listeners will know this does open the floodgates to more TV specials in the future. Hmm. Uh, that uh, I, I may regret opening these floodgates. Uh, but then again, we did talk about the Harry Palmer TV movies. That is also true. We did. For our sins. Yeah, it's two full weeks of James Bond Casino Royale love, and we hope you enjoy it. Uh, and if you do enjoy what you hear on the show, please consider sharing the show, telling your friends, and leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us share even more james bond love as we like to say we are the worst kept secret in spies Hmm. uh and do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at spyhards that's s-p-y-h-a-r-d-s on facebook twitter and instagram but until next week cam i've got a little little itch